0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Rabbi and a Philosopher Walk Into a Podcast. I'm Sol Worth and I'm joined by Rabbi Johannes and Golem. And today we have a very special guest, Rabbi Mendy Maranovsky, all the way from Israel. Thank you for joining us, Mendy. Pleasure to be here. Today we're going to be talking about the story of the Exodus and its significance in relation to mass revelation at Mount Sinai. Yonason, why don't you tell us a bit about the story and some background?
1: Well, firstly, nice to see you, Sol. Good to see you too. And back together in our podcast, really, this one, it would be a rabbi and uh, two rabbis and a philosopher. Two rabbis and a philosopher. (laughs) Uh, The story of Exodus is probably the most fascinating story of all the ones we find in the Old Testament, what we would call the Torah. Uh, the first five books of which are supremely holy in our view because they contain the bulk of all our laws and the nature of how we formed as a people. And we were a great nation but enslaved to the Egyptians and on a very unremarkable Thursday morning in the year 2248, according to the Bible, since creation, all of them walked free it's as if the gates to alcatraz had opened and they walked through now the bible describes that there were six hundred thousand men between the ages of 20 and 16. there would have been probably an equivalent amount of women probably more because we know that the boys were often killed at birth because of the egyptian pharaoh's fixation with there being a, a leader who was going to emerge from the jewish boys who would overtake him, and that's why he killed them, hoping to kill the one who was going to be the leader. He didn't manage to do that, but he did kill a lot of boys at the same time. So there are probably an equal number of women between the ages of 20 and 60, so it gives us 1.2 million, roughly. There are those who are beneath the age of 20 and over the age of uh, 60, take that as another 40 years, which is the same span as 20 to 60. you do the maths, you could probably double it to 2.5 million, to perform four million in at least. And a lot of people. And there's a lot of people, and they all walk free out of Egypt. And seven weeks later, Saturday morning, the 6th of Siban, in the year 2448, there is the early morning call to prayer. It is a shofar being blown, and the Jews are summoned to the mountain at Mount Sinai. They knew this was going to happen. They'd be prepared for several days. They'd be preparing all the weeks from having left Egypt before they got to Mount Sinai. And then the most remarkable thing happens. For the first time in the history of the world, God speaks, but he doesn't talk to the Moses, the great leaders, the prophets, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacobs. He talks to the ordinary person, to you and me. Everybody hears. So till that moment... Everything that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down to Moses has said could have been from God and most likely was from God and everybody was prepared to accept it. He said he would do the miracles, he did them. He said he would split the sea, he did it. So it looks like Moses is indeed a genuine agent of the good Lord. But there's that tiny percentage of doubt that just maybe he's a good magician obviously not with a magician as you are, Saul, yeah. a good yeah. magician He's able to pull off a trick and make you believe that something has happened. I still don't know for certain that God has spoken to him. I have no evidence of that. It's taken purely on belief. This is my mono design. Come the moment of the Saturday morning, Shabbat morning, where God speaks to me, to the ordinary guy, I now am left without any doubt. God has spoken to me. This was an experience that was so overwhelming that the Jewish people and this is recounted twice in the Torah, firstly in the book of Exodus, and it's repeated again in Deuteronomy. So some of the details are repeated in Deuteronomy, which is not then the book of Exodus. And the Jewish people actually was this was too overwhelming. So just as a aside here, the Ten Commandments were actually said to them by God and the other eight by Moses. The word Torah has four letters to it, which all have a numerical values. Interesting, Torah comes to 611. It's if you add up the value of each letter. And Torah means teaching. So they were taught 611 commandments by a third party, i.e. Moses. Two of them, two of those commandments, they didn't need to be taught. They heard it from God directly. So that add that to you get the six hundred and thirteen, which, as you know, is your total of the clumps. So this is and remains the only example of a mass revelation to approximately two and a half million people, every one of whom records exactly the same events. And this story has been passed down from generation to generation till you and I today. Nobody disputes it, even in the generation where Christianity occurred. They never claimed that Sinai did not happen. All they said is, we've got the upgrade. And the Jews said, we don't need the upgrade. We're happy working on Windows 95. And this has been the argument ever since. But they never claimed it didn't happen. They just said, we are the new Jews. Now, other faiths work on a different line. They work on a spiritual calling fulfillment a feeling of closeness a feeling of elevation a soulfulness to their worship this is fine there's nothing in our book that says other nations cannot find other ways of being spiritual but if you ask me what did god actually say the only ones that you can be known you can claim to know for certain this is what god said are the jews that is quite a claim I will stick with it. So it's not about do I get spiritual do I feel a connection with God when I perform this commandment or I refrain from doing that role? you may or you may not it's simply a question of we are in a relationship and that's what the other side wants so you do it do you want to do it maybe yes maybe no but that's meaningful to you God so I'll to it so Jews throughout the world will put on tefillin every weekday if you ask even the most pious of Jews, what exactly is it about tefillin that makes it so important and why would god want that you'll eventually come up with i don't know but that's what he wants therefore i will do it why because that's what he wants you could liken it to a relationship between two adults who live together in a manner which one puts themselves out to do things for the other and it has the same complementary uh, return doing things to each other on the other side. So my wife says to me, let's say, in my relationship, I need the bins empty. And I might say, well, what, why would you want those bins empty? And wh- what is the significance of that? Well, is there some sort of spiritual value to that? And my wife will look at me with a lot that says, if you have gone completely bar me, I want the bins empty. Well, could you just explain that? It's easier for me to... It's easier for me to empty those bins if I understand why. You know, your relationship is not going to last very long like that. Just on a, on a side note, though, I don't personally think it would
0: be unreasonable to ask a partner why they wanted something doing... I mean, for some, maybe something as trivial as the bins, which I presume you've done in your life before, if... 30 years into marriage, you suddenly start asking your wife, Why do you want me to take out the bins? I could see how she would get annoyed at that. But if your wife came to you and seemingly without reason asked you to start binding yourself in leather straps, I mean, let's not go too deep into why your wife might want you bound in leather straps. But suppose he. Say
1: what, I didn't see that one coming.
0: Supposing, though, that, that, that there wasn't any understandable reason. I don't think it would be unjustified for me to say, well, dearest, could I have an explanation as to why you want me to do this? Because, in fact, I might be more likely to want to continue doing what you asked me to do if I feel that there is reason for it and there is explanation. Rather than you simply asking me and expecting me to do it on that behest.
1: That's a very good point. And I can tell you from good experience that that will work some of the time. But there will only be, that w- there will be certain things that become a little bit irrational. People like certain things. People want things done in a specific way. People have talents and failings which mean that they lean in the direction of things, life, colors, decoration being created in a particular form. And some of those things you'll be able to justify, and some of them will just be, that's the way I like it. And if you are in a good relationship, in a healthy relationship, you realize at that point you back off. That's the way my wife wants. In fact, I lived in a block of flats and I was married in, in Goodju Court in Leeds. And there was a refuse shoot at the end of the corridor. And you... It was a very long, rather chilly corridor. Great wide thing that the accesses to the various flats going off from this long corridor. And about 10 o'clock every night, the fellow just upstairs from us would come out of his door and walk to the chute and he would empty the pins. That was exact. He had like one and a half bits of rubbish in his bag and they lived on the second floor. And at some point, He'd put, he put his slippers on and his dressing gown, and off he'd go. And it's freezing cold out there in the winter. And I once said to him, I said, you know, you're pretty dedicated to... Th-. He said to me, my wife does not like to leave rubbish in the house overnight. She's afraid mice will come. Well, on the second floor, in that building, being in solid cement, there was no nooks and crannies. it's very unlikely they would get mice, and they kept a pristinely clean flat. But she had a thing about it. She did not like rubbish left in the house overnight. And he dutifully did it. He made a grimace and he did that thing. The husband sometimes did, oh, my old God, you know. But in the end of the day, he did what his wife wanted. Because why? If you are still mine, she just doesn't an like it, and that's why I do it. That's what love is all about. That's what real love is all about. Love functions as a great tool for you being able to accept things in your partner that you don't necessarily understand. That's the bottom line. There'll be some stuff I will understand. And there'll be stuff that doesn't need an explanation. Like emptying the bin doesn't really require some sort of exposition from Socrates. It's you don't want rubbish in the house. It smells like you're here. <laughs> But there'll always be an area of stuff that you will want a certain way. And your wife will get that and just do it because that's what the husband likes. And vice versa, the husband. And I think in all forms of relationships and friendships, Actually, I think I can give you a bit of an intro to that whole discussion. Mm-hmm. I'd like to sort keep quiet for a bit and hand over to my esteemed son-in-law, who lectures in this stuff. And
2: I think I would add a dimension there. The example relationship was used. There's something very different when comparing it to a human relationship. That in a human relationship, there is a degree of equality between both partners. That is not true in a relationship with God. The very nature of a relationship with God is that He is God and we are His subject. We find multiple examples of our relationship with God at Torah. We have one example of we are His children, He is our Father. We have another, we say this in our prayers on Rosh Hashanah. We say, Our Father and Our King. Now a subject to a king and a child to a parent have very different relationships. Right? Extremely different relationships. Mm. We also, we say in the days of our prayers, in, kavanin, in if we are like children, if we are like servants. Now, servants, again, servants would apply more to the king, less to a father, right? So what is a servant to his father? That is a call CPS right now. That, that, that is not in religious religion. That is not a relationship between the child and the parent, right? And then we have the book of Shir Shirim, written by King Solomon, which is all about a husband and wife, all about a man or a female relationship, which actually there's a debate in the Talmud whether or not that should be put into the Tanah, or not whether it should be. Why was it? Because it's basically like, almost like an erotic fairy tale. If you read it, it's all these expressions of passion and chapter on chapter of how passionate their connection is. So in a second, I would also ask you to relate this slightly back to the
0: topic of Exodus that we're doing today. Let's try and bring it back towards that central discussion as well. but carryings West there so if you think that the book of King Solomon and that story told in Solomon is like a like you've you used the phrase erotic fairy tale that it's it's a bit more like a story and that it has significance and we can learn about the relationships but it's not to be taken literally. how do you as an Orthodox Jew choose that that is that is something you wish to take as non-literal and as a fairy tale rather than, for example, when we get back onto the Exodus story, I suspect, for example, you're going to argue that it happened fairly literally between the two of you. My argument is going to be a claim much more along the sort of lines of what you just said, in fact, that I, I read the Exodus as a story and that that's because, you know, as humans, we learn through stories and we can take values through stories. And in my research for this episode, a lot of what I've researched is, you know, specific scriptural inaccuracies or scientific inaccuracies. But the main point will actually be what can we take from the story and what do all three of us as Jews take from the story and what, what value do we find to it? And that basically, I, the case that I would like to set out to you both is that I feel that the Exodus story and the whole of the Torah can be read incredibly non-literally, but that that doesn't take away from its values. And in fact, in some degrees, for me and for many others, it enhances the values found in the books. Because it allows us, for example, to focus on modern science and say, well, okay, look, we don't think the world is 6,000 years old, but what could we learn about the values of good and bad from the Adam and Eve story? And look, maybe we don't think Moses literally parted the sea, but what do we think we can learn from the story and about being given these Ten Commandments? Whether the morality in the book is true, whether we should be following the Ten Commandments, is technically separate from the literal validity of the acts that happened. So, in that sense, how do you decide that the Book of Solomon can be read more interpretively, but Exodus is literal?
2: So, go back to the Revelation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The Torah is not, We, you know, I found this diary in my grandfather's basement, and let's dust it up and read it through and see what we could decipher. It's not an ancient hieroglyphic that we found. Torah was given together with an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Moses, after the exodus, after the giving of the Torah on Sinai, he ascended, melded, and had his one-on-one tutelage from God, which he went and turned, had this bad teacher who left the classroom moment with a secret holding cat, and then eventually taught this all to the Jewish people. So everything in Torah we have alongside it in oral tradition on how to decipher it. Can I clarify about that as well? When do you believe the Torah was formally written
0: down into the book? Do you think that happened at the Revelation? Was Moses given the physical book, or was he, was he told the words
2: and that it was scribed by humans? So Moses was not given the physical book at that moment. Uh-huh. The, the five books of Moses yep. were written throughout the period of time while Jews were in the desert. Puff. Okay. There's a oh, later books. We know that the, the, the end of Deuteronomy tells us that Moses actually everyone wrote Torah scrolls. There's actually an obligation in the Torah to participate in the writing of a t- Torah scroll. So there were scrolls written then, yeah. which only contained the five books. There's a debate a, in, um, in the Talmud how did he write the passage that says he passes? Mm-hmm. If he's the author, now what we mean author, we mean God dictated he wrote. Yeah, he was Darius right? so He physically. But he's the physical... physical the typewriter. Let's put it out. Like, oh, I don't know if I want to use the word author. I'll say typewriter. Sure. Right? If he's the typewriter, so the Thomas discusses how do he write that passage about him dumbing? how you can't write when you're dead. Right? As we've all agreed. So this two way. One way is God told him to write about his own debt. And if he did so in tears. And I think the other was either God wrote it or Yeshua wrote Joshua wrote it. Joshua. Joshua wrote it. And then the, the later books were each written by the, I guess, the, the hero of that story. For example, David wrote Samuel to sure. right? And the different kings wrote the books of kings till Ezra in the Persian time assembled it all into what we have today as the Tanakh or the books of the general, what, what the modern world would call the Old Testament. Do you, have a, do you have a date for when you believe
0: that the Old Testament was finished? Like, what, when do we have the first finished book? that looks the same as it is today as in when is all of it compiled together into writing for
2: the first time 3408 in the hebrew calendar from the biblical st- stance of creation that'll be three four oh eight in modern times you're going something like fourth century bc I, I, I don't know the exact i would have to do the math backwards Fourth fifth century fourth fifth century is fine right so that like that would it, it would be somewhere out there you could Google, there's actually really off topic, but there's something called the Lost Years in Jewish History. Are you familiar with it? No, not really. Okay, so the, there's the 160 Lost Years in Jewish History. Fascinating topic, really not. Little lot conversation right here. If you take the Dibre and the Yamin, the Chronicles, published by, I believe, Ezra and Nehemiah, in the end of the Tanakh, you have the countings of all the kings. And if you read the stories of Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and the Megillah, and all these stories in the end of the Bible, you have... Jewish interaction with Babylon and Persia. You have this huge issue that the Jewish historians have been troubled with for thousands of years. That in the Archimedian dynasty you have eleven kings, if I'm not mistaken. In the Torah account, from the overtake of the Persian Median Empire to the Babylonians till Alexander the Great conquered Persia, Torah only gives you about five, six wide king Ray for that. Interest and there's about 160 years of documented Persian history omitted from our story. Can, I, can I, I? I I wish the story have been bothered with this. The we, money. I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask this question. Um, in a second, we'll go
0: on to the, the sort of the interesting answer. This question, I want to go back to the Definitely, definitely answer. The definitely. We'll, we'll, we'll jump around. One of the questions I have to sort of to both of you is that there seem to be, well, I'll ask it to you because obviously and you and I have many opportunities to discuss these sorts of things in the future. There seem to be several examples which you yourself will happily acknowledge and in fact bring up of times where, you know, it seems odd that Moses would write about his own death or, well, hey, look, the Jewish history tells us there were five or six kings and this version of history, that's the historical version, tells us there were 11. And you're trying to reconcile those, and a lot of what Jewish history does is attempts to reconcile those. One of the questions I always wonder about the ultra-Orthodox is, do none of these things ever compile themselves together for you? Enough for you to think, maybe it's just wrong. Maybe rather than there being all of this work that needs to be done to compile them, and eventually they can be rectified, and there was something that was you know, this is the reason why the Jewish history says this and the Babylonian history says this or any of those things or this is the reason why the Torah says it's 6,000 years and the science tells us it's billions of years rather than there being a way to rectify them because the Torah is always right and we talked about it in the last episode, Jonathan, that, you know, theoretically, by your view, the Torah should never be wrong. So it must be science that's got it's wrong or maybe both of them are right, but there's some sort of missing link to reconcile them. For me, as an agnostic atheist, my response would be, well, I think the party that's most likely to be flawed in that case is the Torah. Does that ever just get you thinking? Do you ever wonder whether it might be the Torah that's incorrect?
2: So one word answer is no. Okay. The going back to the story of the evolution and the oral tradition that went with it, Jews at that moment made a proclamation called Naseh V'nishmat. We will do, and then we will listen. And they were given, the message says, they were given crowns. God was so impressed by that response to the giving of the Torah. Now, I want to explain what Nasa and Nishma is. Nasa means we will do. We will do is a sound of blind faith servitude. The problem with that is if you only have the Nasa, if you only have what we'll call in Siddiqah and Munab which is simple blind faith, without anything, without any giving room the person's own intelligence, his own desires, his own impulse, what he thinks, then you have fanaticism, you don't have the person. It sounds for anyone who does sort of philosophy, sounds
0: fairly similar to the idea of unformed faith, which tends to fall more in the, in the Christian sphere of philosophy.
2: As what the rabbi mentioned, what Judaism is is a relationship with God. That's not a healthy relationship. Now, this will bounce back to how we started. The first thing I said is that it's not a regular human relationship, but it is a relationship. So if there is a relationship, that means that both parties need to partake. However, because it's not a human relationship, it's the mortal man having relationship with the Supreme Divine, there has to be that degree that I cannot face this the way I would a normal person. See, the, no- the normal relationship that you have, I- I'm celebrating my anniversary today. When, when, I- when I met my wife for the first time, I didn't have the relationship I have with her now. The, the first time you meet a person, you have the pleasantries, a part of you skeptic, a, a little bit, a part of you is intrigued, right? You have, and then you get to know them over time and you use your rationale till you decide that you're gonna be vulnerable and allow your emotional side to develop. But the way you greet people, if you're more of a rational thinker, especially people that, let's say, you're willing to see as a suitor or someone, let's say, totally different, but the same concept as a job offer, you'll use your rationale to dissect the person you're dealing with, right? If the other party isn't another person, rationale cannot be the beginning. If rationale as a whole is an entity created as a tool by God, then that cannot be the starting point of my interaction with him. So the interaction will have to start because I don't have any grassroots ability to grasp him. He would have to initiate the relationship. I cannot initiate it because I am mortal and I have no grasp in the immortal. I have no grasp in the supernatural. He would have to initiate the relationship. Therefore, Judaism cannot begin. Judaism does not begin by Abraham's founding of monotheism. That's not the beginning of Judaism. Why? Because that's a man's idea. However great Abraham is, we call him the father of our nation. Judaism did not start then. Why? Because that is a man's idea. Man's idea can never by the rules of what they are reach god it must begin by revelation from god why because how can the mortal ever meet supernatural however if i'm going to add as much i'm going to add if if i'm going to multiply that by zero i'll never reach a number right if, if you're going to try your hardest as a human being to okay you'll reach the numbers here you no, know, it's, it's an interesting point. So therefore, you need that relationship. And the relationship will have to start Naseh and Nishma. Like here's the cool thing about Judaism. God doesn't want a slave. He wants a relationship. So after Naseh follows Nishma, I'll give you an insane idea. The Talmud, which is basically when all this conversation was eventually written down. Jews were doing this orally for generations. The Talmud is when this is all written down. Histori- historians today have a strong argument that modern Judaism is not biblical. It's post-Talmudic. Yeah. What would you today call someone like myself an Orthodox Jew, yeah. that's a post-Talmudic. That's not a biblical. That is, that, that, that is the statement made today. We would obviously say that the Talmud is the, what they've been doing written down. Now, granted, I do want to give some context. As Jews went through exiles, as the verse in Deuteronomy states, the rabbis have the authority to enact things to help strengthen the Jewish identity and help strengthen the connection with God. As Jews went through certain trials and tribulations, those things were necessary. And that happened over time. So there are a lot of things that we will do today as Lord of Jews that in biblical times they did not do. Oh yeah, and that is not saying that it's not the same religion. Yeah, whether or not
0: you're a post-Tabletic Jew doesn't necessarily put any... Sort of value judgment on the Talmud. you know it it could it could just be, yes, you are a post- Talmudic Jew, but that doesn't necessarily mean what well, they're suggesting it to me in your in your argument. Yeah. can I ask about the rationality point that you made that rationality shouldn't come first? Does the fact that it shouldn't come first mean that it can't come at all? Would that be no. or if that... so so then the question that I'm asking is sort of when I when I ask about you applying your rationality to it, and does it ever cross your mind that maybe the Torah is the inaccuracy? That, I would say, doesn't necessarily... I mean, that is you using your rationality. I wouldn't necessarily say that is primarily rationality. Like, that's not the first thing, because you already would have to have a knowledge of the Torah, which would come from Revelation. It's revealed scripture. You have your knowledge of the revealed scripture.
2: Wait, you're talking to me now. You're talking the Torah as just tradition I was brought up with. I wasn't there, meaning in my living memory, I wasn't there at Sinai. So when you're talking to me now... As a Orthodox Jew questioning my belief due to lack of, let's say, th- there's nowhere in Egyptian writings we have something to prove for the Exodus. Let's say if I were okay. to look at that and say, okay, it didn't happen. That's me using rationality today. I don't understand what you're saying earlier. I, that when, that is prime rationality because I wasn't, I didn't see, I didn't see God come to me. No, but 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 I, but I didn't witness through it. You can't you can't
0: rationally you can't rationally disagree with something unless you already
2: have knowledge on that thing, like. For me, to, for me to critique... Yeah, but that knowledge would not be revelation, my point is. My knowledge would be reading of the book, which would be another form of rationale. So essentially, essentially the... The question is basically, if I understand that correctly, if someone witnessed God, if someone was a prophet, could he then challenge his rationale? I'm saying we're not like that. We're... That's, I don't think that's what I'm saying. Okay, so repeat your question. I misunderstood you. So, I, so I'm asking, for what reason
0: is it, other than faith, is that do you think there is a specific reason that says you shouldn't use rationality to critique the Torah because the Torah is absolute what I'm saying is, you will quite happily use your rationality to critique all sorts of things in regular life and I've I've talked to Yonasin a lot about this before we'll quite happily have very rational conversations about politics and about other religions and about lifestyle choices and all of these sorts of things and then it seems to me that when we come to the Torah, there becomes this level of where it's all taken over by faith, right? The, the space that would have been given to rationality and to reasoning gets removed and gets taken over by faith. And for me, when I read the Torah, I read it from a standpoint of even if it is revealed scripture, let me read from it and apply faith to it. Because I don't know that it's revealed scripture, right? Unless I'm taking the word of the Torah, that it's revealed scripture, which I personally believe we shouldn't do, because, you know, that's all the religions do. It's God's word, how I know. it says, Exactly. If my, if my only example was that how I said so, then I can't do it. And that
2: comes back to the discussion we're having today. Yeah. Revelation. Now I get your question. Now I get your question. So let me go back to the point of the Talmud. We challenge the Torah up to the extent, how much can we understand it? The tablet itself will challenge inaccuracies in the years of Torah till you have a statement established in Torah study in Mukta Nukabateo. Tayuzhanakar So you agree that some of the dates in Butta the Torah might have been wrong and that they then needed clarification and correction. Not that, that the, da- not that I didn't say not that the dates were wrong, that events as presented did it necessarily happen in the form that they are presented in? So there are ina- the same thing but So there are inaccuracies in the Torah that need. I read. taught that no, inaccuracies. I would say God accurately, but they are in the if, if chronology is your only form of accuracy, it's a form of accuracy in that form, correct? Chronologically accurate, yes. So there are a bunch of I guess some inaccuracies for the Torah, but that God had go gathered to with the oral tradition
1: that we were given of how to interpret it. What my son was saying is not that the chronological order is inaccurate. It's not in chronological order. There's a difference between the two.
0: But do they? Okay, so it's not in chronological order. That's not that the better word. If you were, if you were to read something not in chronological order as chronological order, it's your error, right. not theirs. Right. But what I'm saying is, are there any? Do they ever make the claim that this happened at this date, and that's actually incorrect? Like, are there places where are there places where it claims? this thing happened here, and later on in the Talmud you've gone, well, okay, look, actually it didn't happen here, let's correct it, it happened here, let's compile... Like, one of the things, for example, that I wanted to ask you is, where exactly in the Torah does it claim that uh, the two of the commandments were revealed to the Jews directly by God? Where does it claim that those were his... that the words went directly from God to the Jews? Because it's not Exodus, right? Because in Exodus, it claims that, well, i got to hear Exodus 20, says, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Exodus 1912 12-13 says, Beware of ascending the mountain, or touching its edge. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch it, for he shall be stoned or cast down. That to me doesn't really sound like mass revelation. That to me sounds like, yet again, one prophet having the revelation given to him and him then saying it to the people.
1: Can I... You have you mixed up verses a little bit here. The portion of Exodus quite clearly says, the first verse following the Ten Commandments said, all the people saw and heard the voice of God. This really clearly says that that wasn't the case, though.
0: Is that not a contradiction to... No. Like, two verses apart? No. It's not it's... a contradiction all for... Exodus later in the book to say... They all clearly heard God, and for earlier in the book said, "Speak to yourself, and we will listen." But do not have God speak to us, or we will die.
1: Yeah, that verse is not there. You've taken it in the put it in the wrong position.
0: That's Exodus twenty ninety, and the Jews said to Moses, "Speak to us yourself, and we will listen." But do not have God speak to us, or we will die.
1: Yeah, and then what does Moses say? Don't be afraid. That the following verse says that Moses. The following line says, "Do not be afraid." Obviously, those can't listen
0: but it, the 21 then says that people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where
1: God was. Yes, yeah, so all that is, is setting out is mapping the area. Let's saying that the Jews were allowed to stand at the foot of the mountain, but they weren't allowed to ascend the mountain. And even where they stood... Were, they, they So why weren't the they just the mountain? Because once God came down on it, it became holy ground, you don't go there. Why would his holy people not allowed? They're not holy enough. As we find in other examples of that, that even when Moses approached the burning bush, he starts to take off his shoes because it's holy ground, and that's before anything big has ever happened there. Or we have the sanctum sanctorum of the tabernacle and subsequently the temple, that was forbidden entry to anyone, even the priests, except for the high priest, and only once a year, or uh, well, th- several occasions on the day of Yom Kippur itself, was he allowed in. Otherwise, it was you didn't go there. You weren't allowed in there. So, so very holy places become too hot to handle for us human beings. So God says, it's not threatening I'm going to kill you. He's saying it's just too much for you to be able to take. This is a concept of the soul when experiencing truly powerful spiritual.
0: Beware of ascending the mountain or touching its edge. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death.
1: Yeah, yeah. In other words, they wouldn't have transgressed that instruction and brought upon themselves uh, uh, death by... I mean, there's some debate in the Talmud what happens if... How would they put, be put to death and what would it be the numbers of rabbis that would be necessary to judge their case and so on? He shall be stoned or cast down Apparently, the parrot. Yes, so, but none of that happens, so it's a bit more of a threat than to actually practice. I don't know if the fact that it's a correct makes it any better, but... Sure. Well, the fact is they didn't go on the mountain. And Moses replies to God, he says, we've already put borders down and put demarcation lines, say, no parking over here. So we know that they, that the Jewish people know they're not going to go up. And in fact, the problem wasn't them ascending the mountain. The problem was that the Jewish people were so terrified of this that they, they receded. And God, Moses had encouraged them to come and stand where they should be standing, just not any further than that. So they come, they stand, they are afraid of it. What they were afraid of happens. It's too much for them. And what I told you about the two commandments earlier is part of the Midrashic explanations about it, which fits very nicely with what we call the Matria. It's just an added uh, salt and pepper to the story. But the principle fits with Gematria, did you say? Gematria. Gematria is that Hebrew letters. As if the number stuff? Yeah, yeah. They have a numerical value to each of them. So you can actually read a whole bunch of different stuff from every single verse of the tour just by adding what the values of the letters come to.
0: Did you know if, if you use if you use Gematria and apply it to Michael Jackson's last ever tour, you get something like still alive and there are people in America who use Gematria to be justification for why Michael Jackson is still alive and all sorts of incredible, crazy conspiracy theories. Basically just to say that Gematria is, is essentially a fairly limited value system that assigns letters to numbers and that can be manipulated to get numbers of all sorts of significance by picking selective
1: words yeah i think i'd agree with that it's an add-on it's not okay. something that we would base entire tones of the talmud on but in principle going back to the, the original point which Medi said very very well it is part of the relationship and the relationship means that what you do means something to god which explains why some of the commandments will be unexplainable the verse immediately after the giving of the ten Commandments says shefad, blah, blah, that all the people heard and they saw and then the verse in deuteronomy which fills in some of the details that are not mentioned in Exodus, says the same thing and it says the same verses. He said to Moses, we can't take this. This is too much of a divine revelation for us. We're afraid we're going to die. And so Moses says, well, if only you would have that fear of God and that connection with his spirit and so on. All the days of your life, that would be a really good thing. But as we know, it doesn't always happen like that. On the subject of what would you take literally, outside of the Torah, this mass revelation as a story, was passed down to the next generation. So when two and a half million people have families, and there's an equivalent number of how many children were born to them in the dust and so on, and they said, I don't know this whole story happened. They said, because when I was there, I saw it. I, I heard it. They said, well, maybe you were hallucinating. So said, well, go and ask another two and a half million people out there. Go and ask them. And so that generation received the tradition, and they passed it on to the next one. And they all said... How do we know this happens? They say, well, I heard it from my father, and he was a good man. He would have told me. And by the way, there's another reason. And so on. This tradition gets passed down over and over again. Now, the nature of traditions that are inaccurate is when they get passed down, people tweet the story, and things end up being, you know, any newspaper article.
2: The probability to not have changed the story. Okay, so yes, sir. let's talk about that. Well, I've glad, glad you brought up this point, because... Be- I just want to add, before the question, just add something to what he just said. The, I don't know of any other people yep. that can trace their oral traditions. Let's take, for example, the, the Romans have a founding legend of, yeah, two people who were raved by a wolf, right? There's no one today claiming, at least no one notably saying, yep. that is claiming he's actually a descendant and he, he knows which wolf, which pack. It is like that. Do you believe there are people claiming
0: today that this story of the Exodus has literally remained in the oral tradition for so long that there are people who still, like, other than just in the sense of that it was the Jews and therefore people who are the Jews are the descendants of these people, which I don't disagree with? Do you believe there are people alive today who could legitimately make the claim that this story was passed down through the oral tradition still? You think that there are people whose grandfathers, 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 grand... Grandfather no.
2: Told it. So you're, you're, you, ask, you're, you ask your grandfather. I'll put it this way. I, I know I am 20 generations from the remote. Rabbi Moshe Isulis was a rabbi in Crockett. Right? Very, very noteworthy rabbi in Jewish law. He, rabbi Moshe Isserles has a family tree that traces him back to Rashi, who was a French rabbi in the 11th century. Rashi has a family tree that makes him 33 generations to Rabbi Yoflan Sandler. Which is puts you to, I believe, first century. how the Sandler has a family tree that he is a great grandson of Hill the Elder. Hill the Elder was had a family tree that traces him to King David, right? King David has a family tree that traces him to the tribe of Judah, right? We know teacher to disciple every single generation from Moses to now. What other faith could do that? What other people could do that? No monk today could tell you he is. He could trace you from his teacher to Confucius. Okay, well, okay,
0: two things. First of all, I'd be very surprised if there aren't any other peoples who have sort of records that- I, wait to to I would be shocked if there are. Uh, well, I will, I'll have a look at that after. I don't know that there are. So, my, my, some of so my questions are going to come from this then. I'm less fussed about any of the, the first sort of 2,000 years of that, or so the last 2,000 years of that, of that history. I think since the Romans, the fact that we can trace our histories through, you know, census data and through graphs, not that exciting. I think there are lots of people who can do that. Whether or not you can then get from that point all the way back to the historical point, uh, father religions is, is different. But I'm not that fussed about anyone who can trace their history after the codification of these stories. So when the stories were written down, because when they're written down, they're then passed down book to book, that's fine let's talk about some of the potential problems we have with the idea of the oral tradition for the Exodus. The Exodus itself, we think, historians think, most probably happened during the reign of Pharaoh Ramesses II, okay? We know that because Exodus 1.11 mentions the cities of Pithon and Ramesses as store cities, both of which historically are known to have been built for Pharaoh Ramesses II. Now, This would place the events of the Exodus in the 13th century BCE. According to scholarly methods of estimation, including sociological and cultural dating, linguistic analysis and historical analysis, the book of Exodus, we think, was probably actually written down for the first time during the first or second temple period, right? So that could have been from around 950 to 100 BC which fits with what you said earlier about the 4th or 5th century BCE. That's right just in that period. Now, if we think that the idea that it was Pharaoh Ramses II isn't necessarily completely convincing, it definitely was within the period of the Iron Age from 1200 BCE to the Late Bronze Age, which could have been as late as 1500 BCE. It was definitely in that period of time, if it happened. This means that the shortest historical account has up to 300 years between the event and when it was actually codified. The longest account is 1,400 years. It was likely somewhere in between. Now, whether or not we think that the Jews have a better oral tradition than everyone else, the oral tradition is definitely unreliable Over a period of 1400 years. Whether or not there was an event that happened at Mount Sinai, the details and specifics of it just absolutely cannot be trusted or verified when there could have been 1400 years of Chinese whispers going on where it was passed down from generation to generation getting changed. Now, I have a great deal of other research about the actual number, and I'm happy to talk about that in a second. But do you have any thoughts, and Mendy, I'll ask this to you, do you have any thoughts about the idea that if, and I I understand that you may make the case that it it was written down sooner or that you don't agree with that cultural historical account, but humour me for a second, if that account is true, that puts it somewhere between 300 and 1400 years in between the event and the writing, do you acknowledge that the oral tradition, that we shouldn't just say the
2: oral tradition necessarily got that right? Yeah. Uh, I was reading over Pesach uh, a book called Out of the Depths. It's an autobiography by Rabbi Yishol Mayer Lau. Great book, by the way. Totally off. Awesome. Anyone wants to read a good autobiography. He was the youngest survivor of Buffenwald. He was eight years old. And he gets to the British Mandate of Palestine in 1947. And he gets put into a detainment camp. For refugees and the British are trying very hard to organize they have one foot out of the area and they're trying very hard to organize all the people coming in and he gets put in front of a British clerk and he asks him who are you so he tells him my name's Sherlock Lau he says who's your father so he says the chief rabbi I'm for sure mispronouncing this Polish town Piačov, I, I no. a, a, a very noteworthy rabbi and the British clerk, just trying to be organized, says, do you have any documentation to prove that? Again, this is an eight-year-old, eight-year-old boy surviving. Well, he looks at this clerk and he's like, no, I don't have any, I don't have any documentation to, to, to prove that. So he says, so how do you know that those are your parents? It could be this British clerk was just teasing him and he, had, he just burst out crying. He's like, I, those are my parents. I came from this town. These are my parents. I feel like that's a little bit of the Jewish story. And I'll explain why. There is a logical, rational expectation that it should be impossible for 1,400 years of oral tradition to remain with accuracy. Rationally, I agree with that. And just for the record,
0: we've never seen any evidence of an oral tradition just like actually definitely keeping something for 1,400 years there's never been an example of that so your claim your claim would have to be here if this is going to be if the line of argument is just the jews are better at it that your argument has to be that completely without evidence and supposedly without bias coming from you as a jewish rabbi the case you're making is that it's true because the jews are better at it than everyone else and you should just believe us i would not i would never make that claim I'm trying to set the framework of my point here. So Islam's Islam's oral tradition, you think, to be less valid than Jews, why? Let, let, let,
2: me, let me build my, the setting of how I see it. In, in Talmud, we have a statement, with, usually used by money laws, but it's a rationale statement called If one wishes to take away something from someone, the burden of proof is on the one removing. So let's say if I want to take you to court, say you owe me $1,000, I can't just do that. I need to prove that you owe me a thousand dollars, right? Absolutely. The, bur- the burden of proof is always on the one who makes the claim. The one removing. I didn't say makes the claim. No, the, the burden of one removing what? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm okay. explaining. I'm okay. explaining that that claim that logic is used in money. Let's say, if I were to claim you owe me money, I need to prove that you owe me money, right? Okay. I think the word
0: removing is going to trip us up here because it's important to note that while you're saying removing specifically in the case of money. It is also true that the burden of proof is on the one making the claim. And if you were to take me to a small settlement court, you would be the claimant and I would be the respondent. And you are the claimant because you are the one making the claim. So just to clarify that, that I 100% agree in the case of money. If you want to remove money from me, you would need to prove it. But you are the claimant, not the remover.
2: This This is the way. When you are the eyewitness, when you are the product of that oral tradition... You don't view yourself the claimant, you are the story. You're not the claimant, you're the claim. That's fine. But if I went out and I got mugged
0: and I went to the police and I said I've been mugged, the story happened to me, and the police would maybe be, it would maybe be an outrageous thing for the police to do to go, We don't believe you, prove it. But it absolutely happens. It's how the legal system's based: innocent until proven in- guilty. I'm not. I'm not arguing that I can't
2: prove that or tradition. No, I. I agree. You're not arguing that. I'm arguing that it's... you're arguing that you are the proof. I, I'm arguing that I, it could stand true
0: even if I can't prove it. Of course, something could stand true if you can't prove it. But when, for example, you can't provide any evidence, but I, as the respondent can provide lots of evidence that say, well, this thing, this thing, and this thing.
2: Those are challenges. Those aren't
0: evidence that that it didn't happen. For sure. When you don't accept my challenge, it's just a challenge. It's not proof. The, uh, The idea would probably be that I, you know, there is more evidence against most of the biblical stories than there are evidence for the biblical stories in the sense of that the evidence I have that, for example, that God didn't, you know, Moses didn't part the Red Sea. The evidence I have for that not happening is the laws of physics, right? And well,
2: it would be a miracle, so it would something that be divine. Laws of physics. No, I understand that 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 the definition of a miracle being. So to apply scientific evidence to a miracle, I feel is like ridiculous. Because the whole idea of America, by definition, is that it's non-natural. yeah, but that's
0: a that's but that's a definitional argument. That's a circular reason. It's the problem with it with a lot of religious things is that you you create something that by your definition you're putting up these walls and saying you're never going to be able to combat this because if if you say well look this is a miracle and what is the definition of a miracle it goes against science it goes against nature it can never it will obviously never be disproven by science because by definition it goes outside of science. That's like me saying I've got. I've got an invisible egg, and by its nature, it is undisprovable, like the fairy example we used in the last episode.
2: The point here is that you're using the wrong metrics. Okay. Because if, let's say, there's a claim made and I don't have an answer to, and it's something that brings a lot of curiosity. Yep. Why don't people of that era, contemporaries of that era, mention the story? Extreme, I'm very curious about that. I'm also, and but that's a question you have in a
0: lot of areas. Extreme, content, you mean like other non-Jews at the time, why weren't they talking about the flood and stuff like that? Like if there was a worldwide, you know, if there was a worldwide flood that
2: happened in this. for worldwide flood, you do have many ancient civilizations. So I don't want to go there.
0: Yeah, well, sure. Well, there, are, there are lots, of, there are, okay, well, let's, okay, let's clarify that in passing before we move on. There are, lo- there are lots of other civilizations which have shared flood myths that is not the same as there having been one universal flood that happened at the same time. Correct.
2: Definitely, we'll we'll leave that, we'll leave that, we'll leave that. Right. That's a question I have. It's something that burns with curiosity. The Egyptians are, we start history
0: often from them. The Egyptians, for example, we don't have hieroglyphs of the Red Sea parting. That's something that I find very cool. And this goes back to that question earlier of, if you're so curious about it and you acknowledge that you're so curious about it, does it not ever trigger something in you if you're like, well, hello, that's a red flag that this might not be true then? Because for me, when you tell me a fantastical story like, let's, okay, for example, let's take the New Testament. The Romans was the start of the information era. They were taking census. They had, we have, the only reason we've lost so much of the, of the, of the details is because so much of it got destroyed. But there were huge amounts of data kept by the Romans. Why is it that the stories of Jesus and the miracles turn up in stories written a hundred years later by his disciples, but not by the Romans at the time. Or Josephus. Right. My exact response would be because they didn't actually happen. Otherwise, we would be seeing them as a fact of the cultures at the time when there are other massive historical things that definitely did happen. We see different cultures all acknowledging them. That's, that would be an argument that I would make and you've just made it for me. And yet you make the argument and you say, ah, but I don't know. And I want, I trust in God. So I want to keep, I keep following. Those words never came out of my mouth. I, I've heard, I've heard you honestly say that. Well, firstly, I had the oral history. Which we've acknowledged you can't prove is more reliable than any other oral history. I'm not arguing but here's the thing, I'm not coming
2: I'm not pointing a bigger finger to any other history. Let's let's see what Jonathan has
1: to, to add to Yeah, you know, I think there's a, a piece of logic here that's not somehow being articulated. Let's say we go along with your fourteen hundred years of old tradition. Yeah. How do you know any event that's historical? How do you know that's true? I you know, I was to say to you this Napoleon has did Napoleon yeah. exist. Your best method is only going to be witnesses.
0: Yeah, but not the oral tradition,
1: there's a difference there. This is a whole field of history. You have here millions of people passing down an oral tradition. The chances of getting it with pinpoint accuracy over are almost impossible. Almost impossible. Yet when it comes to writing that, there is no conflict. We do not have dozens and dozens of versions of what actually took place Oh, of course we do. In all sorts of in all sorts of
0: times. Not in everything, but in lots of history. It's an entire area of history.
1: You say to somebody, where's this post office? And they say to you, go down the hill, turn right at the traffic lights. It's along that parade of shop. And you walk along a bit and you get, you get confused. You ask somebody else, they say, where's the post office? A totally random stranger. And the guy says to you, yeah, go down the hill, turn right at the traffic lights, turn right. It's, it's down that shop. And yet do this three, four times. You know for certain that a pre- that post office is down the hill and along that parade the shops because all these random people to tell you the same story. You could probably be pretty certain of that. Now, there's, there's some sort of uh, a mathematical way of calculating why that couldn't happen. They could all be lying. Yep, but the, the logic tells you that these people are unrelated. They're not. So they're certainly random people on the street. I'd say the, lo- the likelihood is you've probably got a true, true version of it. Uh, all over the world, you hear the same story and it's all the same, that was the Spirit of the Red Sea, there were Ten Commandments, we stood on Mount It becomes impossible to dress that up and say, well, this is just one big collaboration. Millions of people all over the world will give you the same account of New no Testament. And you know what, an example of this, which is slightly distasteful for me, but it does the work, unfortunately, and that is the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. The Holocaust. If I say to you, did that happen? And you'll say, what kind of question is that? Are you a Holocaust denier? I say, no, I'm not. I just want the evidence of it happening. You weren't there. There is evidence, but I, can ha- I have evidence of Holocaust... So you have evidence, you have scriptural evidence, because you have people... Saying,
0: yeah. I have physical evidence, I can visit Auschwitz, I can see the gas chamber.
1: Somebody could have built that for you.
0: And if they did, it was built as a gas chamber, and there was something very awful that happened there. Whether or not... It... No, nothing ever happened there, it's all been mocked up. And you know what? Maybe, maybe on the 0.01% chance, maybe the Holocaust was fabricated. But the problem with that is, I have spoken to Holocaust survivors. The reason I think this is a poor example from your choice, actually, is that you've picked something that was in the last
1: 100 years. Because it's so recent, you can actually talk to people who were there. But maybe, like the people here where the post office is, They've all collaborated to tell you the same story. Maybe. But that is really going off the point of the... Yeah. As being in pledges. you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people all collaborating to tell you the same story about gas chambers. It sounds fantastic. You would a thing like Definitely. that. what well, they did. So eventually you get to the point where you say there's so many people, there's so much evidence, this could not have been falsified. It must be correct. And that is the same angle, which I believe is, is adequate evidence to say that the revelation as it took place at Mount Sinai, which has been handed out over hundreds of years in exactly the same format, till the time whenever it's written down, which if, let's say, we go according to your view on that, would never have truck room if the thing had, done. because if somebody said, oh, there's a massive revelation to an like, really? Well, show me some of them. Okay, so the so the problem with the problem with that that couldn't happen unless actually there were witnesses to it.
2: Let me try to put one sentence into what I believe my father was saying. If the previous generations would not have been telling the same story, Ezra would not have standing in publishing the Tanakh, and the Talmud would not have standing in its publication. If the previous generations were not themselves telling this very story, and you know what. There's another line of argument here, in that first, and, I, and
0: I'll, I'll talk about later, like what might have happened. But you're absolutely right; they were telling the story. Clearly, people have been telling the story. Does the fact that people were telling the story necessarily mean the story was real? Because here's the problem. Same thing, the Holocaust. Oh, no, but here's the problem. Here's why the Holocaust example. A hundred years from now, there'd be no living. Right. Here's the problem why the Holocaust example doesn't work. You're on an entirely different time frame. You're actually talking about a different order of time frame, right? We're at, you're talking in the hundreds of years. I'm talking in the thousands of years. It's an order of ten times longer. And what I'm sure you will know, and I'm sure both of you will be very aware of this, is that as Jews, as for myself, descendants of Holocaust survivors, and as conscientious Jews, one of the things we have to be really you know, aware of is, yeah, all the Holocaust survivors are dying. And that presents us with some problems, because how do we continue remembering? How do we continue making sure that those people who died don't get forgotten? And absolutely, in 1400 years, I have no idea. Now, okay, I do know what it's going to look like because we have technology. But in 1400 years, if the only way we had of remembering... The, the Holocaust was telling it to my children. And I wasn't allowed to write it down, or I wasn't writing it down, right? This was just oral tradition. In 14 years, 1400 years, who knows how much that story might have changed. In Jewish tradition, Moses wrote a Torah.
2: Yes, I understand that. After we don't have yeah. yeah. any... I understand that. And you, know, you know what I sometimes think about it as? Yeah. In the 1970s, there was a crusade that King David never... I call it a, a, historic, a academic crusade, because people were quite show. adamant about it, right? The, the Israeli archaeologist Israel Finkelstein wrote heavily on it. A lot of people were heavy about it. King David never existed. Okay. Right? The, there was a political side, which I don't really yeah, yeah, yeah. see how that helped. But there was this crusade till they found that this king of Aran had a tablet that showed that victory over one of the descendants of David. And they said, oh, wow. So King David must have had he existed, sure, but nothing that we know about him could be accepted as true because that's all from the Bible. That's mythology. But the person is real, sure, right? Meaning you, I, I do. It's something very similar. We have this oral tradition alongside ancient lack of evidence. Do you think Jesus existed personally? Mm. Yes, as, yes. as, a, as a person. just yes, just not with the
0: narrative of the New Testament. Absolutely, perfect. So it is entirely possible that the events happened in some form, the people existed, and I don't disagree that the people existed, but that the stories are embellishments. There's a huge difference there. But you agree that Jesus existed, but the miracles didn't happen and that he wasn't the son of God. How is that different from me agreeing Moses probably existed? There probably was an exodus from Egypt. I just don't think God spoke to him and two and a half million Jews at the foot of Mount Sinai. I don't think he parted the Red Sea. And I can give you alternate explanations for how that happened.
2: The difference would be the campaigning to make it real versus the parental tradition. In what in what sense do you mean campaigning to make it real? Meaning there there, there is a forcified campaign of other faiths that Judaism doesn't have. More so, but I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that there
0: that there weren't also natural followers. I think absolutely they, you're right. The Christianity especially has been an incredibly forceful and violent religion. And Christianity's uh sort of Prominence around the world can absolutely be put down to force rather than validity of any sort, which, which would which would affect absolutely the the, the of it, absolutely. And I'm not, and that's a different method than how Judaism gained traction. But it's a false dichotomy, basically. It's saying explain that. So a false dichotomy is a sort of a debate term, it's a type of fallacy in which you basically present. Uh, you make it out to seem that there are two arguments and that if it's not one, it must be the other. And people would often get tricked into falling for that and going, oh, you're right. It's not that one. It must be this one. My argument would be, well, no, there's, there's more options. You're saying either it's true or it was spread by violence. Judaism wasn't spread by violence. I'm like, absolutely, you're right. Judaism is not a religion that gained validity in the world by violence. We don't fall under the same example you <laughs> use. They were therefore don't have other cool, but okay, perfect. <laughs> Imperfect. In which case then I am you didn't make the false dichotomy. I'm making sure people don't make don't make it
2: themselves. Again, how do we how do I as a Jew know that I'm putting on filling? I'm not doing a purely cultural thing? Right? There is a combination of what we said earlier, Nase v'nishma. There's a fusion between faith that began with that revelation together with rationale now what is the rationale because if you again what comes first the the faith or the rationale so in service faith will have to come first however how does the rational non-fanatical person i wanted to bring this earlier and i i I lost it we got carried away with it in the the talmud you have I i don't know other religion doctrines well i've never taken a religious course in another faith the talmud would counters itself for example it will challenge a mishnah and say, this, there must be words missing here because this makes no sense. It'll do something like, maybe the teaching you heard was confused. Maybe it's, why? Because we always apply logic in understanding what God told us. Right? Not if he told us, rather apply logic in what he told us. So in Judaism, there is always given room, which is probably a, a theory to why genetically the Jews have proven higher on the intellectual on the IQ points because we've had this dream and aspiration for academia, for Talmudic academia, for Jewish academia. And then when Jews enlightened in 18th century, it went to general academia, right? So we've always been almost accidentally breeding intellectually minded people. So how does that intellectually minded person, that rational minded person, explain his faith to himself?
1: So he has that oral history. Well putting it in the flip side, if none of this was true there's no way it would have been handed down in that fort.
0: Okay, so let me, let me, okay, in which case then. I
2: just want to say one last thing. There's a, a statement. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Oxford, it's the Oxford Bible. They write an introduction there that did Moses exist as a historical figure? So he writes a statement there. Although we cannot, I don't know who the author, who the publisher is. It's the Oxford Bible. It says, even though we cannot prove it, history is left with such a vacuum if he claimed he didn't. Right. And then that almost lends to the history, the the oral history argument. OK, so there have been some really interesting
0: points made and we are towards the end of our time for this episode. But I want to conclude with providing my uh, my complete alternate history. So I'm going to you're welcome to, to either of you respond at the end if you'd like, or I can just give this give this to you and we can let us think about it. And if, if anyone wants any, wants to have any questions, uh, the email address is always in the bio of the podcast uh, if you'd like to get in touch. And all as always, if anyone wants any of my references for any points I've made throughout, be they biblical or academic, feel free to get in touch and I'll try and provide them. So here is my alternate scholarly interpretation and theory. My first point is going to come from an interesting linguistic idea about the Hebrew word elef, which in Exodus is interpreted to mean thousand, by which we get the number 600,000. Now, it comes from a root definition in the ancient Hebrew, meaning unit. And one translation is a thousand. However, we also see it used to mean tribe or clan, for example, in Numbers one sixteen, in which Lf is used to refer to a
1: leader of a tribe of Israel. In Genesis, the word Alaph is used many times as the general.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Now, but what that means is that we could take an alternative uh, explanation, which rather than it being six hundred thousand people or six hundred thousand men, it is six hundred tribe men 600 leaders of tribes now while some tribes may have been a thousand people scholars estimate that this is really unlikely to have been the average which already substantially pulls down the number not to mention the fact that if we consider this interpretation rather than being 600,000 men and then women and children it's 600 tribes which is 600 tribe leaders and their women and children now this substantially pulls down the number now I'm not saying that this is necessarily true. What do you gain from that? It's well I, I will then go I'll then go on to say it. Basically it's a linguistic
1: down into trouble at the beginning of numbers, because there you have thousands and then juxtaposition to hundreds, where the LF must be a thousand. So let me talk through let me talk through what it could suggest if the number was lower, right?
0: And we could also acknowledge that potentially the number could have grown significantly in numbers over the oral tradition that's one thing for example that would be really easy for 1400 years of an oral tradition to change let's say there was a revelation but it was to like 600 people it would be really easy for over 1400 years for that number to get blown completely out of proportion but here's my alternative account the Jews escaped Egypt after being enslaved. That They probably were enslaved. Uh, the, the theory about this is that they entered Egypt as refugees and were, when we say enslaved, we probably don't mean in the way that the American slave trade enslaved people, but rather they were probably forced to work in certain roles and didn't really make money or have capital of their own, but they probably had some degree of freedom. Like, we don't think they actually lived in chains necessarily. Quite, why not? Uh, That's just, that's the scholarly interpretation, and again, like I say, I'll happily send sources for all of us. What is the aim of this narrative? You'll hear it by the end of this story. Basically, Basically, the idea is that I'm compiling lots of different theories into a nicely told story, and I don't think all of this is necessarily correct, but it's just a nice story of an alternative way, because let's remember here that the scholarly interpretation really is that the Exodus account probably just didn't happen. Like, that's the most atheist scholarly interpretation, is that the events of the Bible just aren't true. This is like a story of how historically it could have happened, but without the miraculous nature to it. So one theory suggests that they weren't literally in chains, but were unable to form any sort of cohesive community Until the leadership of Moses, or potentially someone who became known as Moses, or a group of people known as Moses. Now, there was a potentially violent overthrow, maybe they just left. The rest is basically embellished mystery. Now... There may be some basis to the idea of the plagues. Many of them could be explained by natural phenomena. The Nile River turning to blood could have been caused by changes in temperature or high water flow, which caused red algae that we do know to have existed at the time to release dye. And it has been seen that rivers have turned red very quickly. Um, The locusts, frogs and lice can all just be explained by standard seasonal migration and swarming. And you can do this for
1: more of the plague. Now You've got extremely good luck for them all to happen conveniently.
0: Well, here's the idea. Basically, the scholarly interpretation would suggest they didn't happen all at the same time, but happened over a much longer period of time than the scripture would suggest. Maybe even like these were just things that happened over the entire period that the Jews were in Egypt. And the idea would then be that the storytelling... Because what no, what, what no one, even the, the hardest atheist will tell you, no one will argue that the Bible is not a very good story, that they weren't expert storytellers. And one alternative suggestion here... Second <laughs> that Harry that, Potter that. One alternative explanation here would be that all of these things were mythological embellishments, which there may have been some basis to, but which were compiled and made into this story. It's like, we are the people. It's, it's an energising... Uh, belief story that gives it's a founding myth absolutely now once the jews are out of egypt they roam through the desert now it could have taken many years uh it was likely as short as a few months but the idea that it was a 40 year description is probably an exaggeration and comes from the importance and symbolisms of numbers in Judaism, just as we were talking about earlier with the gematria now moses ascends to the top of an already charred mountain as you'll know, the story suggests that the mountaintop was blackened by God. Charred mountaintops happen in that area. There are several miles in the region, such as a mountain known as Kom, which people sometimes theorize was Mount Sinai. Um, this happens due to a natural buildup of minerals, such as manganese and iron. Now, let's assume it's already blackened. He ascends to the top and either carves two stone tablets or has them commissioned and takes them to the top. That's the reason no one's allowed to come up to the top of the mountain with him. Now, the ancient Egyptians, Greeks, and Babylonians all had primitive weather forecasting technology and techniques, so let's suppose that Moses knew a storm was coming in a few days. That's why he returns to the Israelites and tells them to come on day three, right? They return, they obviously can't ascend the mountain, so Moses tells them that they have been commanded to stay there on penalty of death. The book says the storm was already around the top of the mountain when they arrived so they did not see the top and when it clears they attribute the charred mountain to God. At this point the scripture doesn't explicitly mention the number 600,000 that was a little bit earlier. It says that those camping in the desert near the mountain go. This could have easily been a subset of the Jews even if the number was 600,000 but let's remember that the scholarly interpretation potentially puts that number much lower. Now the Blackened Mountain Top is one of the weakest parts of this explanation, and let's just remember again that the primary scholarly interpretation was that it was all just myth, and I'm not presenting this as like this is what happened. It's just like this is an interesting thing to think about. It's an interesting counter story. Now, Moses returns from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and gives them to the Jews. If we think that the crowd at the foot of the mountain was likely not 600,000, but maybe a few hundred into the thousands, it's very. this is very plausible. Even if the LF etymology idea is untrue, the distance between the events and the writing mean that it may well have been simply distorted by the oral tradition and people exaggerating. Now, over time, the other myths and embellishments are added, such as the parting of the Red Sea. These can be explained by psychology like Freudian approach to the human mind in which we invent myths to fulfill the role of a primordial father or by Dawkins mimetic theory which uh, suggests that we create stories and mythologies through culture as a way of understanding the world and making it more palatable for us even as a much more simple explanation literally just watch a child's game of Chinese whispers and see how much words change and then try and make the argument that the oral tradition definitely doesn't add embellishments over time. Also, it supports Moses' claims of the Ten Commandments if he also displays miracles, which is another reason why they were added, which we can see equally to be true with Jesus. The reason that we that all of these prophets claim to do miracles is because it gives validity to their teachings. The story is then passed through the oral tradition, and the story is codified and compiled into the Torah by religious scholars 300 to 1400 years later, and then it's
1: set in history. So, go back to the original point. How do you get millions of people to create the same myths? I'm claiming it wasn't millions of
0: people. Even hundreds of bad- What's the game in, in telling that story?
2: Because what I'm saying is this is a story. It's almost like an, a, the apologetic atheist. Well, you guys, I'm not... Let's let's go to the Buffalo Child analogy, right? We my wild experience. I'm not telling this orphaned camp survivor he has no past just asking him to prove it, meaning it's almost like
0: apologetic atheism. Absolutely, and it kind of is. What I'm saying is, as a Jew, and just as a scholar and a theologian, I'm not trying to claim to you that your history didn't happen. I'm not trying for a second to say that there wasn't an exodus and that the Jew's history doesn't exist. I'm simply saying, all of my worldview points to the idea that God doesn't exist and that the idea of a mass revelation wouldn't be possible probably if you ask me and you ask scholars what do you actually think happened at the revelation at Sinai my argument is I probably just don't think it happened and I think it was something that came purely through mythology and through storytelling right because the reason you have for validity of it is the book and the stories and I'm saying the book and the stories are circular and aren't an argument for themselves (laughs) the living performance of it of it. Absolutely, but I'm saying the living performance, all that shows is that the Jews had a history and can trace that history and Mm -hmm. had lots of significance and the idea of this story is like, this is a story by which we have an exodus, we have an event at Mount Sinai and we get the book as it is today but without the mythology actually happening. That's the idea of this story. I think think you're still missing
1: the point point. I keep going to this. These Ideas, these miracles, are impossible for them to happen unless they are miracles. There's no way... You know how quickly? We, there's no way we could have sold this story. Now, if one person will invent it, two people invent it, a half a dozen people invent it, it still will not get you the mini So, Yonason, my idea is this. My idea And because it's so fantastic, you couldn't persuade people that the sea was split unless they actually saw it happening. Oh. And there were enough witnesses that this and this may sound fantastic to you, but I promise you... That is what happened. So, why didn't Jesus' miracles happen?
0: I don't know that they didn't. You don't know they did? I don't know. Okay, fine. That's, well, that's an Abrahamic faith. We think of, no, we think no, of Jesus as a prophet,
1: They're you know, because Jesus, everything that's in the New Testament traces its way back to a small group of people. Absolutely. That are technically capable of fabricating okay. that story. How do you know that the story yes. of the robot gods? Hang on, but ours traces its way back to millions of people that could not produce one coherent story how do you know the story of the roman gods isn't true that supposedly
0: traces all the way back through an oral tradition to one family the idea is that the romans were all actually descended from the gods so they could have invented it so if i've got no evidence but they could have invented they could have invented this story is the claim i make true test of test time and we are here today we are here today. My argument for why the Jews are here today is a socio-cultural one. It's because whether or not, and I don't think our stories being true leads to that. I think what what is absolutely provably true is that the Jews as a people exist, right? You can do DNA tests to prove that Jews as a people exist and it go back hundreds of years. Now, I'm not for a second saying that our stories aren't fundamentally important to us as people and as Jews and that they don't inform the societies and cultures we create i'm not claiming jews don't exist right my argument is the stories that we are that they are fundamentally based on didn't happen as we think they did they are stories they which are they are stories which fundamentally inform the way that we live our lives. Without those stories, we don't have the cultures and societies that we have. Those stories allow us to live as we do, and those stories are fundamentally important, but that's all they are. They are founding myths. I think they do evolve over time. I think there is evidence of them having evolved over
1: time. People said that the Jewish people sat down. they told exactly the saints.
0: Once a year on Harry Potter Day, millions of people sit around and read the same story. I acknowledge
1: that it is a piece
0: And if the book itself claimed that it wasn't it and when... And absolutely because it doesn't... Do, the the moment you take Harry Potter and claim this is real, it ceases, it falls down. Because the book itself doesn't claim it's real. But I can also say on the same day, on the fight... Harry Potter was a, was, was a hyperbolic example. On the same day... All sorts. There are, in fact, there are hundreds of different days around the year where people from different communities, millions of them, sit down and tell the same story. It goes back every single one of them, without exception, to one. And my claim, one or a group of people, and my claim is that this also goes back to one person. No, it doesn't. The it key point, the Matt. The, the key claim I- that I make, basically the key claim. I try to that because if you said come to a mass people, hundreds of thousands of people, so. Essentially, Jonathan, the key claim I'm making is that this does also go back to single revelation. I think it goes back to Moses as a prophet, whether he was a real prophet or a false prophet, whether you believe prophets to exist. I think Moses freed a group of people, someone called Moses. Freed a group of people who later became known as the Jews from some sort of slavery in Egypt, took a group of them to the base of a mountain where there was a storm above top, told them that that storm was God, went to the top of the mountain and returned with tablets and says, this is what God told me. And over 1400 years, those few hundred people told their children, they told their children, if all of these people are having five to 12 children each, that number gets real big, real quick, and the population exponentially grows all of whom believe the story purely because their father told them and it was an oral tradition, which goes back to an event which did happen, but was not actually mass revelation. It was a single prophet
1: who said it was God. That is my case. Again, you've you've, cre- you've recreated the same flaw. How do you get hundreds of people, 400 people, let's say in your book, to repeat and claim the same figures of mass revelation. There are lots of examples of cults. One group was saying was one people
0: say it's five hundred. Oh, you can absolutely do we don't get that in the Bible. Except you don't know that because you didn't live before the codification of the Torah. My suspicion is that absolutely that number would have varied until it was written down into the Torah, and they decided, after hundreds of years of it changing... Like I said, Ezio the Torah would have been refuted. Do you believe that
1: there were previous versions of the Torah? Three of the Gospels say that the, the Last Supper was, was a Seder, and the fourth says it wasn't. Right? There you have got in the...
0: the... Verbo- oh, come on, you don't think there are any examples in, in the Bible of places where it contradicts itself? Not on these fundamentals. Absolutely there are. Know that... Next week, I will come with a list of 30 things in the Old Testament books alone where it contradicts himself. And now we have the content for the next That's next episode. All right. All right. Yeah. We will have to call it a day here. Yeah. Mendy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely to have you. Jonathan, as ever, it's been wonderful talking to you. If anyone has any suggestions of what you would like to, us to do in the next few episodes, feel free to get in touch either via email or via myself on Instagram or anything like that. And we will hopefully get a chance to do them in the future. Thank you everyone very much for listening to another episode of A Rabbi and a Philosopher Walk Into a Podcast. And we hope to see you again for the next one.